Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. But the big question that the ancient Greeks asked, and I often ask in my seminars, and said we're very good at working out what things are made of. We're far less good at working out what we are made for. So where is God amongst all of this trauma and uncertainty? Whether you're a believer, an atheist, or indifferent, it's a fascinating time to consider the biggest of bigger pictures. In this conversation, I talk with Oxford professor of mathematics, John Lennox. He's debated these issues with the likes of Richard Dawkins and other prominent atheists of our generation. His most recent book is Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Welcome to Wiser Conversations. Today, we've got the great pleasure of having Professor John Lennox uh, with us this evening and the topic, the idea, uh, you know, where is, where is God in a pandemic? Really because Professor John's uh, book, which he recently wrote around the role of God in the coronavirus and, or in the coronavirus, um, but really a scientist, a mathematician, Professor Emeritus at Oxford, uh, you've done a lot of things, written a lot of books, debated a lot of interesting people, the likes of Richard Dawkins, I guess, possibly the most, I guess, famous um, atheist at the moment, I suppose. I don't know how you'd describe him. But uh, it's very, very, very nice to have you. Thank you for joining us today. That's my pleasure. That's nice to be back in New Zealand, albeit just virtually. Yeah, exactly. You were here eight or nine years ago. Um, so we've had a lot of flus in the past in the world. We've had the black uh, death or the black plague, which I think you noted was 20% of the world passed away. We've had 20 million die in the 1918 flu. We've had a million die in the Hong Kong flu. So what's God up to during these times? Where is he? 
And where is he right now? Is he in self-isolation? Like, how, how does this all work? Well, that's why I wrote the book, of course, because this is one of those questions to which there are no, so far as I'm aware, simplistic answers. And people feel insulted if you try to give them. And we have to step back from it and consider it from a number of different perspectives. Now, you're quite right. We've been here before, but not within living memory for most of us. And I think what's scary about this particular pandemic, as Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health in the USA said, is its transmissibility. Because most things in the past, you have to be pretty ill to transmit them. But what's frightening about this is you can appear to carry this stuff without even being aware of it. And it leads to a whole lot of potential reactions. Now, I'm talking to people in New Zealand. And when I was here uh, years ago, I arrived just about two or three days after the earthquake. And of course, had to change all my talks because here was a catastrophe and it raised almost the same questions. Uh, where is God in this kind of a catastrophe? And it was interesting to me to see the reactions. First was the atheist reaction. Well, he obviously isn't. This just is another evidence that there is no God at all. Then at the other poll, there were Christian believers who said, well, you know, I cling on to what God has promised. God is our refuge and strength, even if the mountains fall into the sea, as they appeared to be doing at that time. Then we won't fear. But then there were various people who said, well, this is God's judgment on us. And there were others who said, well, people are suffering, but they're just living out their karma. And the more extreme of that group would say, well, we shouldn't really help them because if we help them, then in the next life, they'll go through worse suffering. So you have a whole complex of different answers to it and responses to it. And I just wonder which of them do you want me to take first? I think you may, may or may not be aware of this, but in New Zealand, and like I think a lot of countries around the world, um, uh, the religious religiosity or the adherent to a faith or the identification with a faith is very much declining and this year or was it late last year for the first time in ever New Zealand in the census you know more people did not uh, mark themselves as identifying with any faith than those who did so for the first time it was more than 50 percent um, said I you know I'm not part of any I don't I don't believe in any kind of uh, religion and I guess one of the questions is why is it why is now a good time to be reflecting on these really eternal universal kind of the bigger biggest of big questions why does it come up why is it a, a, a time that you think whether you are a believer or not is worth reflection well the first thing i'd say to that analysis is that everybody is a person of faith and that's a huge mistake people make they say they don't believe in any religion well, that may well be true, but they do have a worldview in which they believe. And the atheist worldview is as much a faith in that sense as the Christian worldview. And I find a huge problem with people in that 
they think that I, as a Christian, am a person of faith, but they're not. But in fact, they are. And we need to get all the worldviews together at the table. Now, why does this raise those issues? Well, there's an example in the New Testament that I point up in my book that is very interesting to me. And it deals with the judgmental question, which I think is important. The danger of people saying, well, I know what God's doing here. He's judging individuals, groups, or nations for their evil and so on. Well, we have Jesus' actual remarks on this situation, and they're hugely important. There's a a short incident in the book of Luke, I think it's chapter 13, where Jesus in Jerusalem, he's standing on the Temple Mountain, and somebody in the crowd says, you realize, don't you, that it was here that Pilate and some soldiers came and massacred a group of worshipers. Now, that's moral evil. And Jesus said to them, well, do you think they were worse than anybody else around at the time? And he said, I tell you, they were not. Now, that's most interesting because he then added to that an example of a tragedy, what we call natural evil, tsunamis, earthquakes, and COVID-19. And he said, you know, the Tower of Siloam fell and killed 18 people. Were they worse sinners than everybody else in Jerusalem? I tell you, they were not. Now, this is very important that Christians make it very clear that when you look at something like COVID-19, you cannot say that it is necessarily the result of a nation's sin, a group's sin, or an individual's sin. Now, of course, plagues and disasters can be a result of our sin. Our human greed, for example, could strip a forest bare and leave people starving. But this particular incident is very interesting because it had a take-home message. And Jesus' comment on both the example of moral evil, the massacre, and the collapse of the tower was this, except you all repent, you will likewise perish. Now, he didn't mean, of course, if you don't repent, a tower will fall on you or you'll be massacred. What I think he did mean was that any catastrophe like this, particularly a large-scale one, reminds us that we are vulnerable, we're mortal, we're not in control, even though we probably thought we were. And in that sense, quoting C.S. Lewis, it's a kind of wake-up call to think about big issues. This right. forces me to, to realize that I'm going to die one day. Well, that almost instantly raises questions of, is there anything after death? That raises questions of eternity and inevitably about God. Sure. But what do you think, like, you know, the the suffering that takes place in these kind of uh, um, experiences, like without, uh, you know, you can't really have um, good, the idea of good without suffering. Aren't they just part and parcel of the human experience and our collective experience that there is always things going on? They are what they are. And you may look at them and say, well, that's good or that's bad. But you can't possibly look at something and say it's good without the idea of something being bad being able to exist. 
That That's absolutely right. And that's one reason why I think atheism is totally inadequate, because the extreme form, you mentioned Richard Dawkins, whom I've debated, uh, his view of this kind of thing is the universe is just like you'd expect it to be. If at bottom there's no good, no evil, no justice. And then he adds the deterministic twist, and DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So he is abolishing good and evil. And you make the point exactly right. We do, we are moral beings, in spite of what Dawkins' philosophy says. We do believe in right and wrong. But to say that's simply a brute fact, I think, is not doing justice to something utterly wonderful. Because from a Christian perspective, the right and wrong is wired into us as human beings, made in the image of God. This is a tremendous gift of God. And it's traceable back, I think, quite evidently, to the capacity to choose. But do you need, uh, uh, you know, you're a mathematician, so you're always obviously looking for proofs in anything you do. But uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying you should have proof in this scenario, but do we need that? Do we need a religious framework? Do we need a God uh, if we know, as you said, in your own um, uh, comments just now, that we have the capacity as humans to know what's right or wrong? And, um, you know, I wanted to read you something from Emerson, uh, the philosophy uh, writer from, from the Transcendentalist Movement. He says, you know, why must I obey Christ uh because God sent him, but how do I know God sent him? Your own heart teaches the same thing he taught, then why then shall I not just go to my own heart first? Well, <laughs> my response to that is a very simple one. It's that why not have all the information? Uh, that response strikes me as very odd. You see, nobody is claiming that uh, morality started with Christ. That That's a huge mistake that people make. And what I'm saying is by our created image of God within us. We are moral beings. But the need for Christ, and I don't work on the basis of needs, by the way, um, Derek. I work on the basis of what is true. What is the truth about the situation? And the truth about the situation is at that level that my moral intuition tells me that I'm not always coming up on the right side, so to speak. And the message that Christ had to bring was not a moral message simply. He came to point out, and his name, Jesus, means he shall save his people from their sins. Now, that's a completely different ball game. That's dealing with moral collapse. And we all are aware of that. And the whole business of eventually meeting God means that we have to look around for a solution to that problem, and that's what Christ offered I think what, to bring. what you just said is really interesting about the idea of uh, eventually meeting God. Like, isn't a uh, particular or a different worldview that it, it, that he's all it's all around anyway? So God is everything that exists. Let's go in the direction of say the Dutch lens grinder, Brooks Spinoza. Let's go there and say, okay, everything is an expression of God. We're all an expression of God which in that sense would make coronavirus as also an expression of God. Is that an avenue? Well, it's a possible. People can think that if they like, but I would want to say, look, what is the evidence for it? Now, you said to me, you're a mathematician, you want proof. Wrong. 
because <laughs> proof in the rigorous sense, and this is actually quite important, proof in the rigorous sense only occurs in pure mathematics. It doesn't occur in physics, chemistry, or anywhere else. In those fields and in everyday life, we cannot have rigorous proof. But what we can have is evidence, pointers, a basis for our beliefs. And those things can be very powerful indeed. When I came to New Zealand, I trusted my life to one of Air New Zealand's wonderful aircraft. You know, I, I risked my life because I believed there was evidence that it would get me to Auckland. I couldn't prove it to you mathematically. So what is very important here is absolutely people can say that everything is God, but that doesn't solve my existential problem. Just to give you one example, and actually, it doesn't fit with the evidence because my evidence about God doesn't simply come from my scientific observations of the physical world and universe, although we can deduce things from that. It is that anybody that thinks about culture and history must reckon with the explosive arrival of the Christian faith 20 centuries ago. And whether we feel any need for it or not, there appears a person who claims to be God, which is either crazy or, and I want to investigate the or. Why? Because I do believe intellectually and historically and experientially that there's evidence that he proved his identity by rising from the dead. Now, we can say, well, forget about that. Well, if you forget about that, of course, you'll never discover anything about it. And what I want to do as a human being is to find the truth. Now, it might help the, the viewers and listeners to this to realize that I grew up in a strong Christian family. And they, amazingly, for Northern Ireland of all places in those days, they, first of all, allowed me to think, which was exceptional. Secondly, they were not sectarian, but they encouraged me to look at other worldviews. And when I got to Cambridge, I wanted to be sure that what I believed was true, not whether I needed it or found it helpful, but is it true? So what I've done since then, and that's a long time ago, it's getting dangerously near 60 years ago, I decided from virtually day one, that I would open up what I believe to criticism, attack, contradiction, anything else, dialogue with people that didn't share my worldview. And that's the way I've approached these. Well, I think that's very generous. And I think, you know, that's part of the spirit of this conversation too, to explore why, you know, while maybe people are not uh, Christians or they're not a, a, of, of that persuasion, what can we take from Christianity or other religions in these kinds of times? And I think people do become more uh, open to it. You know, in Christchurch, when we had the terrorism attack last year, you know, there was a huge embracing and willingness and want to know and understand uh, Islam, which, you know, was never here in, in New Zealand before as a, as, a, as a desire. So I think whether you're of any particular religion, these times give you an opportunity to just think about things that otherwise you don't normally, you know, you're not encouraged to think about these days. Well, that's a very sad thing. And it's true in Europe. I mean, here we are with all this history 
a huge legacy of Christianity, giving us hospitals, hospices, universities, our legal system, and yet the word God doesn't appear in the Constitution. And therefore, if one result of this coronavirus is, as we've already seen, the virtual churches are far fuller than churches were before, and people are asking big questions, well, that's a good result. Although I'm very cautious about saying every cloud is a silver lining. That's that's dangerous kind of talk. This has happened, and the reasons for it happening at the beginning may be very complex, and they may have to do with the environment and the way we treat wild animals, for, for example. And several of our leading scientists have pointed out that if you take wild animals and confine them, they get stressed and they excrete all kinds of viruses. And it may be that that misuse of nature led to the initial outbreak. So so if you have a view of, of, of God that's maybe not a Christian view, but that it's the life force, it's the energy that just keeps the universe moving, you, I mean, isn't it possible to see this as a rebalancing effort when you look at it under the the, the lens of eternity, like, okay, we're going slightly off course, we are causing some issues for ourselves, whether it's the climate or animals, and it needs to continually evolve and rebalance itself to, to, to continue. What, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, again, I wouldn't be very persuaded by it, because the idea of God as a force, that sounds like Star Wars theology to me. Yeah. And it's very well. It could also be Taoism, you know, the Taoist idea of just the, just the, the, the yes, Tao. it could. And that that would be a bit more sensible. But yeah. the idea of God simply as a force, I think, is dangerous because we are persons. We use forces, and intuitively, we feel we're superior to them. And the God revealed to us in the Bible is not a force; he's a person. And that makes things very different indeed. I'll just ask you right there, because there's a great question in the panel uh, from Celia saying, how are you defining God? Um, could Jesus be seen as someone who has fully realized a divine spark within him and become fully enlightened? Well, you could take it like that, but that's not what he said. He didn't talk about the divine spark. That's Stoicism, by the way, from the ancient Greeks. What he said was, not that he had a divine spark and was enlightened, but that he was God and he could enlighten us because he was the truth and the light of the world. So how am I defining God is an excellent question, uh, Celia. Thank you for that because we've got so many vague ideas. When I was younger and I used the word God, people would understand that I meant the God as revealed in the Bible, that is the creator and upholder of the universe, who created a universe that's outside of himself and maintains it and upholds it, and who has, beyond that, revealed himself in Christ so that we can learn a great deal about him looking at the universe, but we learn the complete revelation is in Jesus Christ. That's what and who, rather, that I mean by God. In a sense, then, isn't the whole creation or the whole existence of these things that which we label as evil, such as the coronavirus, whether it's natural or moral, uh, how is it not uh, the case that that is 
a creation of God like it is and it is it is what it is and we we take it for what it is and it there's a reason for it like you don't like the idea that there's a silver lining but what if the silver lining let's just say is for whatever reason due to let's say the collapse of global air travel we rapidly get back on track for uh, not overheating the planet and so for the next you know, generations that are to come, we finally made a dent in this thing that we've been struggling for 30 years to crack around climate change and, and this kind of warming of the planet. So if that's a really massive positive outcome of what's happening, then can you not see that maybe that is an instrument of God that he's saying, I, I actually want to do this to re, re, realign things. And then how do you embrace those kinds of evils? Well, there are several questions there, but the, the main one would be, there's a great difference in God's good creation permitting this kind of thing to happen and God being the direct cause of it. And I would want to distinguish very sharply between the two, that it's permitted, but the catch is that there is, I believe, a deep original connection between moral evil, human rebellion against God initially, and damage to the physical universe. Because what we read, whatever you make of it, it's a different matter, but what we read is that that human rebellion against God brought sin into the world, of course, as denial and refusal to obey God's word, but it also brought human death. And the point that's made in Genesis is that it brought damage to the physical world. Thorns and thistles were going to grow. Work would become, well, toil, and so on and so forth. And I think that that has to be taken into account, that streaming down through history, there is this element of damage to the world. Now, if we look, here's where it gets very complicated to my mind. Take what happened in New Zealand with the earthquake. Tectonic plates, they moved, but they're utterly essential, that movement, to the production of oxygen. Well, so as you've noted in your book, are viruses. That's what I was going on to say. The vast majority of viruses are not only positive, they're essential for life, but we've some rogue viruses. So that fits the pattern to my mind, of the thorns and thistles, these, th these things that happen in consequence of mm -hmm. an original damage. Now, to come to your other point, I do believe that God works in all these things. And you're right about climate change. And by the way, if you haven't seen it, it's well worth reading the Times obituary yesterday of Sir John Houghton, who was a friend of mine and who led the intergovernmental uh, panel on climate change. It's a very interesting review because he was a believer and integrated his Christian faith with climate change. I think, yes, we, we damage it. And it has the effect of rebalancing the biosphere. At least some of these things that happen do that. And it's very good when we can see people today attempting to get in on the act and help rebalance it, particularly when it comes to our atmosphere. I've got a couple of questions that I'll come to, um, but I wanted to go to your, just, just for one more time, to go to the idea that, um, okay, the coronavirus or any kind of thing like COVID is not, you know, an act of God, but he is not, he's not doing it 
but he is letting it happen. Yeah, but then that means, in a sense, that he is um, also not acting to stop it. So, you know, in one sense, he's sitting back, but the action that he's actually taking is not stopping it or not preventing it. And I would be careful with that analysis as well, because action is being taken to stop it. And many of our frontline doctors, although, of course, by no means all, and research scientists, we've got a huge body of Christian medics in the front line of fighting it. And I don't think we must think that God has to directly act, but indirectly, I think he's acting not only through people who believe in him, but people who don't. Yeah, but I guess I'm saying an inaction in a sense of letting something occur is in a way acting. So not choosing not to do something, not, not that he is, you know, if, if people are working in the healthcare and all that, they are working. But for the thing to exist, for coronavirus to exist and to go from Wuhan to all around the world is, uh, you know, it's, it's a way of, um, if you didn't bottle it up and keep it in Wuhan, there is an act of not preventing it from going globally. Do you know oh, what I, I mean? Oh, I do. I know exactly what you mean. But the same principle applies to every illness and every death. You know, individuals, it's just that on the large scale, and we never think about it until it happens on the large scale. It's exactly the same principle. And I can't second guess God when it's a question of allowing people to die. Um, mm. There is a story in the New Testament, but it would take... Uh, a bit of time. I, I, I want to go to this question because you just mentioned it. Question from Clay. Many have prayed to be saved from dying from COVID, but it did not save them. Why did God allow them to die? Well, what I find in answer to that is several considerations. And let me state my position clearly. I believe that God can save people and does from time to time. But there's no guarantee that prayers, even prayers made in great faith, will have that effect. And we can see that already in the New Testament. It ought not to surprise us. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament and who brought it to the world, and to whom I'm enormously indebted, he clearly had a very serious eye disease, so bad it was that it may have disfigured his face that people who saw him uh, said, we'd have taken our eyes out and given them to you. And Paul tells us that he took it to God and he got an answer, but it wasn't, I'm going to heal you. It was, my grace is enough for you. That here we're reaching a deep mystery. God doesn't always listen to prayers like that for healing from COVID or anything else. And my own attitude to that is here I am in my 70s, vulnerable, on the vulnerable list. I'm locked down. Well, COVID-19 might take me. I'm not praying that it doesn't. I'm simply praying that in my life I will fulfill the task I believe God has got for me because, and the reason I can do that is because that I have a great hope um, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, I will be one day. And it's that element in Christianity that atheism, of course, by definition, doesn't have, giving right. you hope beyond the grave. 
that helps us not to just react to these things and say, God, save me from this. Well, for what purpose? Let's talk about some of the things that are more shareable amongst everybody that an atheist or a Christian or a Muslim would all agree that could come from um, the notions of grace in Christianity? Or what are the, some of the positive qualities that you think are universal and eternal that are coming through um, from these kinds of times and these kinds of experiences that more people are bringing out or reflecting on and things like that? Because I think those are beautiful things to reflect on that, that unite everybody. No, I agree with that entirely. And it's important to, to say it because I have unbounded admiration for doctors of all faiths and none and nurses and medical staff who at great risk to themselves, be it said, and in the absence of the requisite amount of PPE and so on, are fighting this virus. And that kind of fellow human feeling, loving your neighbor as yourself, which, by the way, is not a peculiarly Christian notion. It's in all faiths and none, as C.S. Lewis has shown. That is a wonderful thing. Another wonderful thing is the way in which lockdown has made people aware of folks that they haven't contacted for years. And I've been practicing this, and it's so amazing to phone somebody up you maybe haven't spoken to for 20 years. And they might be a bit irritated at first. Why didn't I hear from you? But then afterwards they say, you know, this has really made my day. We want to be imaginative in reaching out to people. Or the neighbors across the wall of my garden who say, are you okay? Can we do some shopping for you? Could we, could we get this? Could we get that? All of these intensely human things, I believe, are to be encouraged. And also the lessons that all of us can learn. Do we need all these journeys? Do we need to do so much travel? Do we need all the things we normally have? It's, it's raising huge questions about consumerism, our attitude to the creation around. And I would very much hope that it means that we have a much more, a deeper sense of our stewardship of what we've got. And that includes the, the people over whom we may have some influence in our businesses and everything else. From your conversations, You've spoken to a lot of people all around the world in the last few, well, not that long, probably six weeks. Um, are you, have you got the sense that that's what, what is coming out all around the world? Do you have the sense, are you hopeful that that is happening? People really are reflecting on those things. And is that what you've collected from all these conversations you've had with so many people? I think it's happening. But I would just say, I hope it has a long-term effect. Right. That's the thing we're all a bit uh, anxious about, that it, it just fades as soon as the whole uh, pa pandemic has got under control. We forget the big issues and we plunge back into mm. life as it was before, although I doubt that. Yeah. Uh, too much has changed in the world for that. What would be your biggest hope for uh, us all out of this experience, for the whole world? What What would be your biggest hope for coming out of this? Well, I think at different levels, on the on the, the moral level and behavioral level, a much greater sense of our unity and responsibility for others, our stewardship of the natural world, 
are concerned for supporting uh, those people that look after us and protect us, medics in particular, but not only people who take great risks. And then on the spiritual and intellectual side, that we do a lot more thinking about where it's all going and raise questions about what is life about. You know, we've been brilliant at deconstructing human beings, and we know all that they're made of and so on. But the big question that the ancient Greeks asked, and I often ask in my seminars, I said we're very good at working out what things are made of. We're far less good at working out what we are made for. And that's the question that I challenge people with. What do you think you were made for, if anything? I love and discovering that. new purposes is important. I think that's so great. I love that. I love that if that was that came out of this whole experience that more and more people really ask that question and whatever their answer is, it's 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 a personal answer. Every person will have their own answer, but I think it's a a, a beautiful question and the time and space that's being afforded to us that aren't at the front line of this crisis in different parts of the world is um, maybe a gift to help people reflect on that. So I really appreciate you spending the time, uh, Professor John. I like, really also respect the courage you have to just get out there and, and, and promote and talk about the things you love. And also the fact that you just pulled together that book, you know, so quickly. And I mean, whatever you believe, it's still an interesting, fascinating read that thinks about the whole experience that we're in and uh it's really the reason why why i reached out to you to to connect and i'm very glad that we we have and uh we've just about reached time but i just wanted to thank you very much and thank everyone else this evening for for joining well thank you very much and may i just mention that i've got a website johnlennox.org on which there are lots of things like this but thank you for inviting me into your thinking room in new zealand <laughs> Very welcome. Uh, warm greetings and good evening to all of you. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, together at home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.